Welcome back to A Little Too Spooky, the special October editions of A Little Too Quiet. This is the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. We have had local authors reading some particularly spine-tingling stories for you. Original stories, short stories of their own imaginations. We've had Kathy Koja and Ophelia Crane so far. And today we have writer and filmmaker James Henry Hall. Hall debuted his first film in the early 2010s and recently completed and released a mesmerizing, and at times, yes, spine-tingling, short piece called A Ben Evans Film, which was adapted from a Josh Mallerman short story. Today, James Henry Hall will be reading a short story for us called Chapel Hill. A hard-boiled yarn reminiscent of the Twilight Zone, but with some particularly grisly and astonishing discoveries in store for the main character. Here's something to soundtrack, a chilly evening walk, or perhaps accompanying a quiet sit by the fire. It's James Henry Hall on A Little Too Spooky. Hello, my name is James Henry Hall, and I'll be reading Chapel Hill. 1. Tom Patterson and his red and white Packard 400 barreled north along M43, the speedometer quivering above 90. He gripped the steering wheel to ease its shaking. The speedometer hit 95, 100. He had a place to be, but there wouldn't be any shame if he didn't make it. At least, he would die trying. The narrow, two-lane truck line originated in Detroit and continued northeast for 132 miles until it ended at a speck on the map. A speck Tom initially mistook for a bit of dust while he was mapping out his next sales route. When the dust went whisk away, Tom reached for his magnifying glass and discovered the speck had a name. A name masked by the larger font of surrounding towns and cities. Had the mapmaker wished to bury the existence of this little settlement on the shore of Lake Huron? Even with the aid of a magnifying glass, he had to squint to read the town's name. Strange, he hadn't noticed this place before, since he read his map more often than the newspaper. When the name came, he felt a connection, more so a nudge. A slight push in his mind and body that pointed towards this nearly invisible town. Several hours later, he found himself in the car on the road heading towards Chapel Hill. By his best guess, he had about another 30 or 40 miles to go. Michigan, as a whole, was rich in scenic drives, and Tom had driven pretty much all of them, but this drive topped the charts for beauty. To his left, white pines with deep copper needles echoed along the windy road. Snow clung to the crown of each tree like a stocking cap. To his right, the cyan waters of Lake Huron tapped the white sandy shore. The sun's rays bounced off the water and gave it a rich, luminous glow that beckoned him. Had it not been January, Tom would have stopped to swim. When Tom drove, he never drove alone. Typically, he rode with a single companion, but this time around, he had two. A batch of cleaning supplies in the trunk that were being offered at wholesale prices, and a stainless steel Smith & Wesson. The cleaning supplies traveled with him wherever he went. They were his bread and butter. He toured the state, going door-to-door conveying the sensational and never-ending uses of Patterson's cleaning supplies, products of his own design. Tom made a modest living until recently when the Fuller Brush Company expanded into the Midwest Territory. The Fuller Brush Company had run him out of Grand Rapids, Flint, and now Detroit, not to mention everywhere in between. 
Their prices were too low and their brand recognition was too high. Why would anyone use Patterson products, a company most had never heard of, when they could use the Fuller Brush products? The answer was simple. They wouldn't. Why? Because every piece of shit on the block wanted to be like every other piece of shit on the block. The lack of sales left Tom broke. His wallet had gotten as thin as he had. At last count, he had $7 in his wallet and 30 cents in his pocket. The $7 would barely cover a hotel and food for a stay in Chapel Hill for a few days. The 30 cents would give him a gallon of gas, which would be enough to course around town in pursuit of a sale. But what about his secondary companion? The little fiend was lying in wait in case he canvassed the town and came up dry, in which case he would craft a note and leave it on the passenger seat, place the Smith & Wesson's barrel in his mouth, eat lead, and be taken adrift to a place known for its pitch-black scenic overlooks and cease of existence. Purchasing the gun, something Tom never thought he would do, was motivated by a recent string of horrific events that destroyed his mental capacity for conjuring positive thoughts. The first blow being the sudden decline in sales. The second, and biggest blow of all, was discovering that his wife Beverly was engaging in an affair with the next-door neighbor during Tom's long absences. He found this out when Beverly became pregnant. No words were exchanged. Tom didn't yell and Beverly didn't apologize. Tom only shrugged, swiftly packed his bags, and strolled quietly into the night. The four wheels of the Packard had been his home ever since, and what a lonely home it had become. The whirl of the tires against the pavement seemed to squeal reminders of all that he had lost. The reminders sucked all joy and happiness until it left Tom's mind inhospitable. Tom had given up until he spotted Chapel Hill on the map. But why all the hope in Chapel Hill? Intuition? A gut feeling? One thing he did know was that if someone as well-traveled as he hadn't heard of Chapel Hill, maybe his competitors hadn't either. Maybe a new location would be a catalyst for change. Maybe aid him in climbing out of the pit of despair he had fallen, rather, been shoved into. The taillights of another car came into view when Tom descended a crest. He slammed on the brakes to avoid colliding into the back of the slowpoke. The speedometer took a nosedive to 50. Tom slammed his hand on the top of the wheel. Come on, you jackass! Tom said and blasted his horn. He slid into the other lane to pass, but before he could, he spotted another oncoming car. Tom cranked the wheel back to the right lane and continued riding the bumper of the car in front. He tried passing again. Same result. On the next downward slope, there was a highway free of oncoming vehicles. He slammed the gas to the floorboard and zoomed around in ahead. Within seconds, his Packard was back up to 90. 30 miles down the road, Tom passed a faded green and white sign welcoming him to Chapel Hill. 2. Tom turned left off M43 onto Maple. He had reached downtown Chapel Hill. Smaller than expected, no more than an intersection or two, he found this both good and bad. Good because it meant the Fuller Brush Company might not have reached the coastal town yet. Bad because the smaller population meant fewer opportunities for sales. Either way, Tom came prepared to pitch his heart out. The rush of the drive had energized him. This town, his final hope, was about to be introduced to the quick cleaning abilities of the Patterson cleaning products. The first building he passed, a Texaco station, had a sleek black Continental Mark II parked beside the pump. Outside the freshly waxed vehicle, a gas station attendant in a brown uniform operated the pump. The sight of the Continental triggered hope. They were popular in 1956, amongst the rich. One could purchase five of Tom's modest Packard 400s for the price of one Continental. Had he stumbled upon an affluent community flying under the radar? If you could afford a $10,000 car, you could afford a $20 bundle of cleaning supplies. 
The driver sat stoic in the driver's seat, both hands on the wheel. His posture probably as stiff as his personality. Tom knew the polished Bond Vivant types. He had seen many on his travels, those who dubbed themselves top of the social chain due to the size of their bank account. Yes, he knew them well, the most skeptical of buyers. But over the years, he had learned to sell to this distinct group. A block further, on the northeast corner of Burdick and Maple, a movie theater's white marquee arched over the sidewalk. One film took over the entire marquee, Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Under the marquee, a stout, gray-haired man in navy slacks stood on the top rung of a ladder adjusting movie times. Tom drove on. The next building, Al's Diner, absorbed half the city block. Through the window, a handful of patrons finished their lunch. They were likely choking down the remnants of burgers, fries, and milkshakes. His stomach churned at the thought of food. He hadn't eaten yet today. Further on was a newsstand where the proprietor stacked bundles of newspapers while a man in a tailored pinstripe suit scanned the rows of periodicals. Tom passed an appliance store, the last of the downtown buildings and shops. Tom turned onto Mason Street, according to a snowtop sign. His instincts suggested he begin here. Similar housing lined Mason Street, low-pitched roofs, overhanging eaves, tapered columns, and snow-covered porches. Apparently, the only colors of paint they sold in this town were green, brown, or taupe. Tom parked under the canopy of a barren birch tree halfway down the street. He put on his oatmeal-colored tweed suit coat and whisked his fingers through his hair. Enough tonic remained left over to stick it to the side. He checked himself in the rearview mirror to make sure he didn't resemble someone who lived out of the car. Dapper as always. He exited the Packard 400, and 20-degree temperature struck his face with its icy palm. His nose crinkled from the dry January air. The scent of smoke from smoldering wood surrounded him. He spotted the source down the block where plumes of opaque gray smoke rose from a chimney. Days when winter had a bite were meant to be spent indoors reading by a crackling fire. Tom recounted many a day with Beverly where they would sit in two chairs propped towards the fire doing just that. Tom would be reading Ian Fleming and Beverly Agatha Christie. The moment between a former husband and wife lingered. He reminisced until a shiver brought him out of it. He roped around to the back of his car, popped the trunk, and seized his bronze leather briefcase crammed with demonstration-ready cleaning supplies. Tom strolled between a break and a white picket fence, approached the first house, and knocked. The pop of his fist against the door interrupted the silent neighborhood. While he waited for the woman of the house to answer, he lingered on the stillness. It was quiet, ghost-like. The sound of cars, children, dogs, or birds was non-existent. Snow dampened sound and could create an eerie stillness in winter, but it never erased it. No cars traveled down Mason Street, nor along Maple. Had there been other cars on the road? Of course there was, wasn't there? No cars would be strange, sure, but not unheard of. Chapel Hill was small, after all. There had been the Continental, but it was parked. Not on the road. But he had seen it pull out, hadn't he? Tom knocked again. This time, the sound was absorbed by the surroundings and barely produced any noise at all. He knocked again. This time, harder. With the same result. The soundless nature of the neighborhood brought a shudder. Merely because there was no outside audio to keep his mind distracted. In its absence, he could hear the Smith and Wesson whispering. 3. Nobody answered the door, so Tom departed and followed the curved sidewalk up to the house next door and knocked. Once twice, then a third time. Nobody answered. Two no-shows in a row was unusual, but no matter, sales was a numbers game. At the third house, after he knocked, he spoke through the door. Good afternoon. My name is Tom Patterson, and I was hoping we could chat for a moment. 
He waited for a response or for the door to open, neither of which happened. Tom waited. No one answered. He strolled over to the next house. Nobody answered there either. Ah, oh, for criminy's sakes, Tom thought. Tom crossed the street. Nobody answered their doors on that side either. By the tenth house in a row, Tom grew frustrated. The entire neighborhood was either avoiding him or was vacant. From the porch of house number 10, he noticed a red, snow-covered Chevrolet parked in the driveway. The snow on the Chevrolet was peculiar. It hadn't snowed in two weeks. The owner had to have left the house at some point since it had snowed. Tom spun around and surveyed the neighborhood as a whole. He took note of all the houses he had passed thus far, as well as those further along his intended route. He missed something on his initial pass. Every house either had a snow-covered car, driveway, or sidewalk. No footprints except his own. No tire tracks except for his. The neighborhood had been untouched since the last snowstorm. It was winter, and yes, people frequently tended to remain inside during those months, but to not leave at all? Impossible. Even if everyone remained indoors, there still would be service vehicles making their rounds daily. The postman, milkman, refuse workers. Curious, he sidestepped to the front window, cupped his hands over the sides of his face, and pressed his nose to the glass. The diaphanous curtains obscured any detail and offered up a dreamlike image inside the home. Still, no matter how out of focus the picture was, the results were perplexing. That is, if everything was as Tom was seeing it. All the lights were on, a table was set for four, a meal laid out, two children, a sandy-haired boy and a blonde-haired girl sat across from each other. The boy had a food-filled spoon tilted back, ready to fling at his sister. The girl's elbows were pinned on the table, and her tongue was pointed towards the boy. The father sat at the head of the table in half of a brown suit as the rest was slung over the back of the chair. He sliced through a large baked potato on his plate. The mother scooped food from a silver serving tray onto the man's plate. She wore a white apron over her floral house dress. It was a charming domestic scene, except the whole family was dead. 4. The father, mother, son, and daughter were dead, but they didn't appear to be deceased. At least not at first glance. Someone had staged their corpses using a combination of rope, masking tape, and haphazardly constructed wooden braces to create the illusion of a family at dinner. It would have been a flawless recreation of a living, breathing household had it not been for all the blood. Each family member's throat had been slashed. The open wounds left a blood-soaked trail down their chest. Bile churned in his gut, fighting, clawing, pushing its way upward. Whoever did this spent hours assembling this scene after murdering the family. It looked like the most effort had been spent on ensuring the mother remained standing as rigor mortis wore off and decomposition began. Her legs were tied to a wooden brace nailed to the floor that ran up her spine. Her arms were extended and held in position by rope that had been looped around her wrist and tied to the chandelier. The finishing touch, and perhaps the most deranged of all, masking tape had been used to curve each family member's lips into a faux smile, a smile that suggested everything is okay, we are a family. The smiles animated the scene, gave it life, so much so they almost fooled Tom into thinking he had been mistaken. The family was having dinner, they weren't dead. But a few blinks of the eye and further inspection shook the illusion away. Tom heaved, gagged, then spewed vomit all over the window. His stomach contents cascaded down the pane like rain. Help, Tom said. He wiped his mouth. We need help over here. Call the police. His words were absorbed into the neighborhood, silenced by the town. What the fuck, he thought. 
His heart raced, and breaths came in short spurts. He had never seen a dead body before, let alone four. Tom sprinted next door and pounded on the door so hard it shook the frame. For a moment, he thought the door might crash in, yet nobody answered. Where was everybody? Tom stopped knocking. They couldn't all be dead, could they? A whole neighborhood? His heartbeat quickened, a surge of adrenaline. That would explain why nobody was answering. Tom peered in the window. He saw the back of the television and the chair across from it where a heavyset man sat with a snuffed out cigarette between his fingers and a beer bottle in his hand. A woman sat on the adjacent couch, her legs crossed at the ankles as she knitted a scarf. They were both too decomposed for Tom to be able to decipher any further details. He peeked inside two more homes, all featuring the same macabre arrangement. Everyone in the neighborhood was dead, not only dead, dead and staged. 5. Tom left Mason Street in a frenzy and drove around Chapel Hill until he spotted the Chapel Hill police station. He swerved to the right, hit the curb, and threw the vehicle into park. Tom leapt from his car and nearly took out a boy walking his dog as he charged across the sidewalk. Sorry, he said, and kept moving. Tom caught his breath at the entryway inside the station. The short breath winded him. He then strolled over the counter where a receptionist was sifting through a stack of papers. <sighs> Excuse me, ma'am, he began, the words getting caught in his throat. His mind was still reeling. I need to report an incident. That wasn't the right word. An incident is something small like a cat in a tree or a fender bender. He corrected himself, despising the word he was about to utter. It's been a murder. The receptionist didn't flinch nor waver from her task. Tom repeated himself. While waiting for her to respond, he noticed the yellow yarn wrapped around her wrists, the wooden brace attaching her hip to the desk, and the same taped faux smile. For a longer glance, he had been fooled. The woman had no blood on her dress or skin, Nothing about her seemed dead, but she was dead. Her chest didn't rise or fall, nor did she move a muscle. She stood in the midst of sorting papers like she would forever. Tom gazed beyond the receptionist to the rest of the room. Two officers stood in the back with their hands held out as if they were in mid-conversation. Another sat at a desk with a man in handcuffs across from him. Panic set in. This time it was different. He had been fooled for a moment, but how? The only thing Tom could think of was that movement was natural, expected. So, perhaps his imagination challenged the stillness, bridging a non-existent gap between the alive and the lifelike. Tom lingered on the thought. Perhaps that was the point? To see life where there wasn't? For the mind to fill gaps that didn't exist? Footsteps echoed from the adjoining room. The door was closed and blocked his view. He stiffened, clenched his fists. Was the noise real, or had he imagined it? Was it another side effect of the arrangement? Tom listened. A moment passed. Hello? Tom said. Silence. Someone there? This time Tom spoke loud enough to be heard through the door. No answer. Then a shadow moved across the bottom of the door, another shuffling of feet, heavy, like they were wearing boots. The sound was followed by the distinct sound of tape being pulled from its roll. Never had Tom's legs moved so fast. Seconds after departing from the station, he was back on the street. There he saw the boy whom he had almost knocked over on his way into the station. This time around, he saw them for what they were, instead of what they were presented to be. The boy and his dog were both dead and staged. Less than a block away from the street, Tom spotted Al's diner. He crossed and stood outside. Through the window, a waitress poured two old men coffee, Another waitress served food to a table of teens, and a cook in the back flipped burgers with the marble hanging from his lips. 
Delighted to see living people, he rushed inside. Within Al's diner, Tom expected chatter and commotion from a full dining room of living people. Instead, there was silence, stillness, a world without movement, a world dead and staged. His hope, dangling by a string, fell off the spool. The smell struck next. It was unholy, a mixture of rotten eggs, feces, and vomit that rushed forward like a battalion ready for war. He scanned the room. A dozen people sat around the dining room over rotting food. Somewhere in the distance, flies buzzed. The whole town. They got the whole damn town. You might be next. Get out. Get out. Get out. Tom turned to leave, and when he did, he spotted movement out of the corner of his eye. He glanced to the source and studied the area. In a town downright still, motion frightened him. 6. A woman in the rear turned her head, enough for Tom to notice. She sat against the window in the corner, alone. Tom crossed the dining room to join the woman in a yellow dress saturated with blood. Her hair, which had fallen from whatever hairdo she spent hours doing, was a stringy mess of blood, dirt, and smeared makeup. On the right side of her neck was the start of an incision. Her eyes were dilated as she appeared to waver in and out of consciousness. Whoever did this had taped her to the booth with a block of wood wedged between her chin and the top of the table. This kept her gaze locked out the window. Her left hand was taped to the table while her right hand was taped to a fork. Tom ripped through the tape. The woman tensed. Don't be scared, Tom said. I'm here to help. I'm not going to hurt you. Her lips parted as though she was going to speak, but no words came out. She was probably either heavily drugged or in a state of shock. No matter. Tom lifted her up, she wasn't heavy, and wrapped her left arm over his shoulder and walked her out of the diner, down the block, and into his Packard. Tom reached into the glove compartment and retrieved the Smith & Wesson. He wedged the cold revolver under his left leg, just in case. The woman, who had slumped over towards the door, hadn't even registered him reaching across her, nor had she noticed the weapon. Tom started the car, and it roared to life. His coming, said the woman, but her words were slurred as though she were holding her tongue as she spoke. Tom looked over at her, her gaze locked on the sidewalk. Her body was there, but her mind was elsewhere. Who's coming, Tom asked. Her next line of words took more deciphering as they were a garbled mess. Jeff, as far away as you can. Tom put the car in gear, did a U-turn, and turned right onto Maple. The woman looked over her shoulder towards the road. Who? Did this, Tom asked. The artist, said the woman. Seven. Tom and the woman drove down Maple towards M43, two more miles until they would be free of Chapel Hill. The artist, Tom asked. That's what they call themselves. The woman spun in her seat and glared at the road traveled thus far. She studied the horizon as if any minute now she expected something to come of it. When nothing did, she turned her attention back to Tom. They whisper to you, lure you, to fool you. Tom looked into the woman's sullen eyes. You said they? The woman turned towards the passenger window and said nothing for a minute. When she spoke, her words were monotone. One person can achieve something of that magnitude. It, it takes a group. Another moment passed. I was the only one left, the last piece. How many are there? Tom asked. The woman shrugged. She began to sob. They're going to be angry I left, the woman turned to Tom, and even angrier with you for taking me away. We'll drive to Samhattan. I saw it on the way. We'll stop. Notify the police. You're safe now, Tom said. Sure. 
she said with blatant skepticism and then drew a couple lines with their finger in the fogged up window. The sun popped out from behind a cloud and beamed into Tom's face. He brought down the visor to shield his eyes. In that moment of blindness, either from the sun or the visor, Tom nearly collided into a police barricade. 8. The Packard squealed to a stop, leaving tire marks on the road in its wake, and narrowly avoiding crashing into the first of three police cruisers. I guess we don't need the cops. They came to us, Tom said. Outside the Packard, six police officers faced Tom and the woman, guns drawn. Tom looked at the woman and smiled. We're saved. The woman shook her head. They're dead too. Tom did a double take. She was correct. They were all dead. Staged like the concluding chapter of a month-long manhunt. He could drive around, but the ditch on either side was too steep. His car wouldn't make it. He turned to the woman whose face suggested she had lost all hope of getting out of Chapel Hill. I'll get in each car, pop them in neutral, and push them out of the way, he said. Stay here, Tom added, and then opened his door. They could be around, she said. Tom scanned his surroundings. The fields were barren, the ditches empty, and neither a car ahead nor behind. I don't see anyone, plus I have this. Tom held up the Smith & Wesson. The woman didn't seem convinced. It'll take five minutes, promise, Tom said. I won't let anything happen to you, he added. Tom left the security of his Packard 400 an inch towards the closest policed cruiser. The same ghost-like silence persevered. No birds, no cars, not even the crunch of his brown dress shoes on the gravel produced noise. The absence of sound accelerated Tom's pace. Something was wrong here, very wrong. Once safely back in the car, he wouldn't stop driving until hundreds of miles separated him from Chapel Hill. He glanced back at the woman. She gazed back with troubled, worried eyes. Tom reached the cruiser with the officer leaning over the hood, gun drawn. Now, mere feet away, he noticed that the man had masking tape on his cheeks that bent his lips into a wide smile. By stepping inside the action, the setup, the staging, Tom felt part of it. If he looked at it all the right way, it came to life before him. He saw the officer shouting at an assailant. He saw them moving in for an arrest. He saw them living out a day on the job. Yet, he didn't really see any of that because they were all dead. He snapped out of his daze. Whoever did this was clever. The cast of characters, their staging, and the smiles, those fake smiles, gave each scene their realism. Somehow, someway, the people behind this had recreated life amongst death. Tom opened the police cruiser's passenger door and slid behind the wheel. He popped the gear select into neutral and was about to get back out to push the cruiser when a bullet tore through the windshield and left a hole that spiderwebbed across the driver's side. The bullet struck the top of his ear and took a chunk with it. Tom howled and dove to the passenger seat for cover. During the dive, the Smith & Wesson slipped from his grip and fell to the floor. He scooped it up and gripped the handle, his finger teasing the trigger. He waited for another shot. His mouth became dry. His body trembled. No follow-up shot rang out. After a few minutes, he gained the courage to peek. He lifted his head high enough to peer out the passenger window. To the right, the woman ran away. She was nothing more than a small speck in his sights now. Straight ahead, five officers were still scattered in place. To the left, one remaining officer, the one attached to the cruiser, had fallen to the ground. Beyond any of the dead and staged, there was nobody else. He listened for the sound of someone approaching, heavy boots perhaps. The only noise was his fast-paced breathing. 
Through the spider-webbed windshield movement, a slight jerk. Tom withdrew from view. Someone was out there. Or was it one of the cops? Was one of them only pretending? Tom wiped his clammy hands on his slacks. His legs tightened in anticipation of fleeing. He peered out the window again, scanning each officer for signs of life. A blink, a twitch, an inhale or exhale. Nothing but stillness. The passenger door's hinges squealed when they opened, spoiling any possibility of stealth. He cringed and crawled out and onto the cold cement. He kept as low as he could as he turned and faced the scene, his gun at the ready. The officers stood as rigid as before, no sign of movement. He strode backwards to his car, eyes never faltering from the men in uniform or the landscape beyond. Someone shot at him and they were still near, hidden now, but still near. Forget moving the cars out of the way, he would ram his Packard straight through that barricade and get the hell out of Chapel Hill. But what about the girl? Damn it. Yes, he would turn around and get her first. He couldn't leave her here. Tom was halfway back to the Packard when the officer to the right jerked free from his arrangement and fired a quick shot. The bullet struck Tom in the hip bone and brought him down. Then, a hand reached from behind him and stuffed a damp cloth over his nose and mouth. Within seconds, he blacked out. 9. Tom awoke weary and unable to move, his mind adrift in a fog. Thoughts buzzed past without connection, an excruciating pain registered somewhere in his midsection. The world around him was hazy and frigid. A shiver told him he was outside. He tried to speak, but moving his lips was difficult. Something held them together, probably masking tape. What's happening? Where am I? The soft whistling of a familiar tune came from somewhere behind Tom. He tried to identify the song, but the mental fog blocked the answer. Ah, you're awake, said a melodious voice. Slowly, the world came into focus. Tom was tied to a park bench. The woman was several yards in front of him, positioned on a red blanket with a picnic basket beside her. Her dress had been changed from yellow to blue. He looked for signs of life. From this distance, he couldn't detect a swell in her chest or spot any movement. They must have finished her off. Beyond her were two children playing on a swing set. Yes, it looked like a serene day in the park, except that it wasn't. We almost thought you two weren't going to get to be a part of this, said the voice. This time closer, right behind Tom's damaged ear. What a shame that would have been. A lanky man in a low-cut dress with gold embroidery approached from his left. The man's face was concealed by heavy olive color makeup and his eyebrows had been shaven off. On his head, he wore a long, straight black wig. Tom recognized the costume immediately. The man was dressed as the Mona Lisa. The man slicked Tom's hair back, a shame not to be part of the greatest artwork in the world. In his hands, the man held a massive butcher knife that gleamed in the sun. We'll all be legends, said the man dressed as Mona Lisa, more popular than Beethoven or Leonardo. The Mona Lisa man raised the knife and smiled a crooked smile. Chapel Hill is our masterpiece. You aren't done yet, said another voice from Tom's right. We need to move on. Great art takes patience, said the Mona Lisa man. A police officer passed by Tom, the same one who had shot him. Whether he was actually a police officer or not was unknown. When Tom spotted the man, he remembered the wound, and as soon as he remembered the wound, the pain increased. I'll set the girl and you finish him off, said the officer. I'm sorry about him, said the Mona Lisa man. Art appreciation takes time. Sweat dripped down Tom's brow and pooled above his eyebrows. The Mona Lisa man waved the butcher knife around like a children's toy. 
Any minute now, that blade would slide along Tom's neck and spill internal debris down his chest. Tom would remain alive, maybe for a minute or two, before being plunged into darkness forever. His heart quickened and his whole body became rigid. Adrenaline surged. Again. The darkness frightened him. Once the knife split his skin, he would never enjoy a sunset, a woman's kiss, the warmth of the sun, or the joy of laughter again. Suddenly, death appalled him. Anything in life, in living, was greater than a cease of existence. Life was greater than death. No feeling was final, except for death. A whimper came from the woman. She was alive, for the moment. The officer grabbed a roll of masking tape from his pocket and pinned her lips into a smile. Beautiful, he said. He then wrapped his meaty fingers around her neck and squeezed. At the same time, the Mona Lisa man pressed the knife against Tom's neck. The tip broke skin and blood trickled out. Tom closed his eyes and waited to feel the knife swipe across his neck. The woman gasped for air. Her attempts produced a wheezing sound. Waiting for her to die was worse than waiting for himself to die. He hated hearing her struggle to breathe and prayed for it to be over. Once she's gone, you'll be next, said the Mona Lisa man. There is an order. The man drove the tip into Tom's neck a bit further. A larger trickle of blood poured out. Tom winced as the smell of copper filled his nostrils. He opened his eyes. The woman was still being choked. The life had yet to leave her body. The Mona Lisa man lowered the knife from Tom's neck and watched with joy as his accomplice murdered the woman. The feeling began to resurface in Tom's extremities. His hand was resting on leather. His briefcase. He had his hand on it the entire time. While the Mona Lisa man's attention was elsewhere, he gripped the lock and popped it open. He expected the mechanical pop to catch the Mona Lisa man's attention, but it didn't. The sound was absorbed by Chapel Hill. He lifted the top of the briefcase and dug his hand inside. To his dismay, the bag was empty. Damn it. Still, his fingers continued to probe the case. There had to be something he could use. Do you want the knife? The Mona Lisa man asked his companion. No said the officer. Tom's fingers ran up the top of the briefcase and found a folded over pocket. He lifted the flap and dug his trembling hands inside. His fingers slid over the top of a small spray bottle. Tom pulled the bottle from its hiding place and held it at the ready. The top of the briefcase, without Tom's arm in the way to hold it up, slammed shut. The sudden noise caught the Mona Lisa man's attention and he spun around. Thinking fast, Tom squirted two full pumps of cleaning chemicals into the man's eyes. The Mona Lisa man dropped the knife, put both hands over his eyes, and screamed in agony. Tom wiggled free of his binding and seized the knife. Before he knew it, he had the knife three inches deep in the Mona Lisa man's stomach. Tom retracted the knife and stabbed him again. The Mona Lisa man fell to the ground. During the fall, his wig fell off, revealing his shiny, bald head. The officer was upon Tom. He had given up on the woman. Tom swung the bloody knife towards the officer, but the man dodged it. The officer then reached for his service pistol on his hip, but before he could retrieve it, Tom lunged forward and tackled him. The two tumbled to the ground. The officer tried again for his pistol. Tom drove his knee down hard on the officer's hands. Bones crushed underneath and the officer screamed. His grip on the gun loosened. Tom raised the knife, but before he could plunge it into the officer's chest, the officer slammed his left fist into Tom's right eye. The officer pushed Tom off and then climbed on top. The weight on his chest limited his breathing. The man clocked Tom in the jaw and blood sprayed out of his mouth. While Tom was recovering from the blow, the officer retrieved his service pistol and shoved it under Tom's chin. His finger laid on the trigger. A little tension would hurl brain confetti across the snow. 
Tom waited for darkness once again. It would arrive any minute. The woman rose behind Tom. She scooped the knife off the ground, drew it back, and plunged it into the officer's back. He arched his back and howled. Tom knocked the pistol out from under his chin and pushed the officer off of him. The woman raised the knife again. Her nostrils were flared and her eyes seemed to bulge. She let out a shriek and then stabbed him again and again and again. The officer slumped over and lay motionless. Still, the woman kept stabbing. He's dead, Tom finally said. The woman, now out of breath, reached down and tried to pick up the dead officer. Help me. What are we doing, Tom asked. She looked at him with flinty eyes. We're arranging them. 10. With Tom's help, the woman laid the Mona Lisa man's body in his former spot on the park bench. Why are we doing this? Tom asked. Because there are at least four or five more. If we pose them, then maybe the others won't notice right away something is amiss. Tom nodded. The woman pointed to the officer. Grab his feet. They dragged him onto the blanket and propped him upright best they could. Now let's get out of here, said the woman. They ran down the block to where the Packard was parked and hopped inside. Inside, Tom found his Smith & Wesson laid out on the passenger seat. He grabbed it and stuffed it under his leg in case they needed it before they made it out of Chapel Hill. Tom started the car. Luckily, the keys were still in the ignition and drove towards the barricade. Buckle up and get your head down, Tom said as he accelerated. The Packard collided with the two police cars, sending car parts and shards of broken glass in all directions. Still, somehow, the sound of the collision was dampened by the brisk Chapel Hill air. Both cruisers spun from impact and cleared a path. The cruiser on the right ricocheted off the Packard and continued its 360-degree spin. Once on the other side of the barricade, the woman sat upright. Tom gripped the wheel, shifting his gaze between the rearview mirror and the road ahead. But no car ever surfaced. A few more miles down the road, Chapel Hill, now out of sight, had returned to being nothing more than a speck on a map. The woman in the passenger seat turned on the radio. Bill Haley and his comments, Rock Around the Clock, was in the middle of the chorus. Tom sang along. The woman did too. Her singing voice was soft, serene, and gentle. The music perked her up. At one point, Tom thought he even saw her smile. He relished being surrounded by a lively smile, one produced without the aid of masking tape. Tom shifted in his seat and the Smith and Wesson poked his thigh. He forgot he had stuffed it under his leg. He retrieved the firearm. For the first time in a while, it wasn't calling his name. After being surrounded by death, he lost all interest in it. Sure, he would travel to the darkness someday. That was inevitable. But it wouldn't be by choice. It would be against his will, like every corpse in Chapel Hill. That is the only way, right? Otherwise, if you go willingly, you were dead long before it showed up at your doorstep. It was time to start anew. Time to start living. Tom rolled down his window and tossed the Smith & Wesson out into the passing pines. Why'd you do that? The woman asked. I don't need it anymore, Tom said. That was James Henry Hall, writer and filmmaker, performing a story titled Chapel Hill. If you want to find out more about Hall, we'll have links in the show notes, including more info about the recent film he directed, which is titled A Ben Evans Film. This is the Ferndale Library Podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. 
and you have listened to the final installment of our special October series showcasing local authors a little too spooky. My name is Jeff Milo, the host of the podcast, and we produce it in-house here at the Ferndale Library. A special thanks to musician Steve Green. Steve Green is a solo composer as well as a member of the band Voyager 3, and Green provided the intro and outro music for these podcast entries. We thank you for listening, and happy hauntings. Thank you.